Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to reply, guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett. And I'm Julia Clare. Kate, how are you? I'm all right, but Little Pearl is biting my hand and it really hurts. So if you hear me scream on this podcast, that is the work of Little Pearl. Uh, Little Pearl. For those of you who, who might be joining us for the first time, she's a celeb. She's one of Kate's cats. Uh, the other is uh, Albert, who makes far fewer appearances uh, in the content of the show than Little Pearl. Yeah, Little Pearl is uh, someone who, whenever someone is using a computer, she has to stop it. She's, like, really mad because she sees the people are working, and if you're working, you're not paying attention to her. You may actually be able to hear Little Pearl purring in the recording. I think she's next to the device that I'm recording on, so if you hear, like, a... Low rumbling. That is Little Pearl demanding attention right now. Um, she, we celebrate her. Uh, so, anyways, what a strange time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Happy uh, belated Valentine's Day and President's Day <laughs> with my, to all with- who celebrate. Yeah, it was my uh, my my anniversary with my boyfriend this weekend too. So this is just really a, a triple whammy um, of uh, holidays that we did not go out of the house to celebrate. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but there was uh, there was a pretty good piece of news um, this weekend. And no, it was last week, which is that uh, Marjorie Taylor what Greene. Is, what is what is time anymore? I haven't known what day it is in a year. Yeah. Um, well, OK, so Marjorie Taylor Greene cheated on her husband of 25 years with a polyamorous tantric sex guru and then moved on to another affair with a manager at her gym. And this is like the first thing <laughs> that she's ever done that I felt like was kind of relatable. I right. look, I'm not married, uh, but have I had sex with polyamorous tantric sex gurus? Absolutely. You of know? course you have. Yeah. Um, that was, you know, how I spent a few years of my life in San Francisco, um, which, by the way, reminds me, I have an audiobook coming out on Thursday. Hell uh, yeah. Yeah, and I'm I'm very excited. It's called Dirtbag Anthropology, and I wrote a book of comedic essays um, and interviews about masculinity. So we're going to play the trailer for you here. Hi, I'm Kate Willett. I'm a stand-up comic. I've spent a lot of my career writing jokes about men and what it's like to date them. Because everyone really thinks it's super easy for women to get laid. And I just think that anyone who thinks that should give me back the hours of my life that I've spent listening to opinions on aliens. (laughs) 
I guess I write a lot of jokes about men because masculinity is super funny right now. We're in a moment where we're all so uncertain about what masculinity is supposed to be, whether there's too much of it or not enough, whether it's toxic. Nobody quite knows what to do. No one knows what to expect. And although this can sometimes lead to tragedy, it can also be hilarious. A lot of people are really confused about like how gender roles are supposed to go right now and have a lot of anxiety about it. You know, it's like we all have a lot of questions on our minds. Like, are uh, women supposed to pay for half? Can men show their feelings? Are women people? Like, ah, we don't know, you know? Like, we may never know. But I feel like there's got to be, like, some other ways, like, besides being really aggressive in bed. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure, like, back in the olden days and stuff, like, my grandpa, you know, like, he wasn't choking my grandma. Like, that's... I, I, I don't know. I think he went fishing. Maybe because I talk about dudes so much, a lot of people have asked me to clear up all that masculinity stuff for them. They want to know what it means to be a good man in the age after me, too. This book is my attempt to answer that question. I may not be a fancy academic, but as a comic, I'm at least a dirtbag anthropologist. Whether that means I study dirtbags or whether it means I myself am very low budget, you decide. This is kind of a self-help book. I will provide you with many helpful tips, and there are lots of expert interviews with fun people like W. Kamau Bell and Margaret Cho and Pastor Nadia Boltz-Weber, but it's also a memoir, Because in order to talk about this question in a real way, I had to talk about how specific men have shaped me. My dad, my brother, my first kisses, my church friends, the men I had sex with and fell desperately in love with, and one particular man who I loved and lost. It's kind of a surprising story because, fun fact, I used to be married to a woman and I never planned on dealing with any of you guys. Dirtbag Anthropology. Listen only on Audible. All right, so that is the trailer for my audiobook, and it's free on Audible Plus. And this is the first and last time you're going to hear me promote, you know, Jeff Bezos, Amazon on the podcast, but girls got to (laughs) eat. You know, yeah. I, <laughs> I I was uh, I was employed by by Audible to write uh, this book, and it was it was a really fun project that I worked on for two years, and I'm I'm really proud of the way it turned out. So please listen to it. Absolutely. Um, that yeah, it's I, I'm very excited for it. the The promo shots are are great. The cover is so uh, so perfect. Uh, shout out to Mindy Tucker. Yeah, who who took the pictures? Um, also, uh, shout rocks. out to my boyfriend for loaning me all the things in the shot. <laughs> I was like, Jake, do you have any um things that a dirtbag guy would have that I might be able to bother borrow from the show? You know, like any any possessions? Uh, he's like, like what? I'm like, I don't know, like a shirt, beer cans. Doc Martens, he's like, yeah, I have all that stuff. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you are you are attracted to a very specific brand of man. Yeah. I mean, but it's not the book isn't all about like 
dating or attraction or anything like that. I have, like, a lot of stuff about, like, uh, other areas of life. Like, Julia, there's a chapter about evangelical Christianity that you might be interested in as a, <laughs> as, as a former evangelical Christian queen yourself. Thank uh, you. I wrote about the internet. Uh, Reply Guys, I have a whole chapter on, not Reply Guys, our show, but on men. The phenomenon. Reply. Yeah. So... There you go. It's you and, know, and your dad, right? Didn't you interview and my dad, your dad? I interviewed my dad, which was which was one of the I, one of my favorite parts of the book. Honestly, was interviewing my dad. It was really good. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I just you know I haven't even heard the whole thing put together yet. I worked on it for a long time, and it's done. And that is crazy that it's out on Thursday. So. Hell yeah. Well, congratulations to you. And we need every piece of good news that we can get. So this is awesome. And you should feel very proud of yourself. I'm proud to be here with you. Sorry. You know, you know who does not care is little Pearl. Little Pearl. Little she Pearl. She does not care. Yeah. She, she doesn't care. She doesn't give a fuck about anyone besides herself. <laughs> Um, okay, so you wanted to talk about the Secretary of the Interior nomination, yeah? Of course I did. It's very much in my brand. Uh, yeah, I, I want to talk about Deb Haaland, uh, who is the nominee for Secretary of the Interior. Um, she is... Probably she's one of the the best people that the Biden administration has has nominated for for a cabinet position. Um, And if confirmed, which I believe she will be, uh, she will be, you know, the first uh, Native American to hold a a cabinet position at the federal level, which is uh, cool as hell. Uh, But also um, I love Deb because she is making so many <laughs> Republicans just like melt down as her confirmation hearing approaches because she opposes fracking. <laughs> and she had joined the Dakota Access Pipeline protests uh, when they were, you know, in, in their full swing. And I do think it's really funny to watch the kind of mental gymnastics that Republicans are going through to justify why that's a problem. Because, um, you know, the, the description of the job is uh, that the Secretary of the Interior works with conserving federal lands and natural resources. And that's exactly what she... That's exactly what they're mad about. <laughs> so... I just like I think it's so funny how it's not funny. It's very sad that the cabinet positions uh, under the Trump presidency were were such that like clearly they're like, no, put another oil lobbyist in there. (laughs) Every. Every cabinet secretary's prior job had been working in direct opposition to that department. So, 
I know they really, they're losing their minds that someone would be nominated who has demonstrated that they will do the job the job description at hand. Um, very much, I'm assuming, like, you know, an education secretary who doesn't actively hate public schools. Yeah, I mean, who knows what these people are going to do. I mean, I, I, I'm not that optimistic, but, I mean, definitely it's an improvement from the days where, like, the person was, like, actively trying to destroy the agency. We'll, we'll only see those in about, I don't know, half the cabinet appointments or something. Um, but I will say that Deb Haaland is actively good. She's she a, is... I, I, I don't know too much about her yet, uh, but I'm excited to look into her. Love to look into the cabinet appointments, mainly because I don't like it's it's so off putting to me. The fact that like people are like, oh, now I completely don't have to pay attention anymore no, or something. Of course. Like, it's yeah, that's really, bullshit. really, really horrible. Although, you know, I will say uh, that, um, you know, I uh, I have seen a lot of uh, liberals kind of start to realize what's wrong with the Democratic Party because a lot of people were really, really pissed that Trump was acquitted, you know? Mm -hmm. And, th that and was no, like, wit no witnesses were called. Yeah, and the no witnesses were called. And that was, like, the first time I saw some of these, like, giant liberal blue check accounts be like, fuck the Democratic Party, you know? But these were, like, kind of professional Democratic Party. Like, th their whole thing is to be supporting the Democratic Party. And I, I, like that was, I guess, a step too far for, for some of them. Not any of the other stuff that's happened, but that was the one. Right. And it, I mean, I, I think what added insult to injury there is the fact that uh, Congress decided to, to go on its recess. Uh, for Valentine's Day. <laughs> yeah. For Valentine's Day. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and I think... You know, and that's after, you know, the initial, the initial stages of the, of the COVID relief bill have been passed in the House, but it, the, the final bill is still being worked on. And <laughs> Joe Biden could have made them, I mean, he could have said, don't go on a recess. He could have made them, them work through the week um, but yeah, I think it, it has rubbed a lot of people the wrong way that in this first month, Democrats who now have even very slim majorities, they still have majorities and they have not done anything tangible and then decided to take a break. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and the whole thing about like the impeachment trial was like, Oh, we have to get this done, you know, um, because this is so it's so important because otherwise we're just signing off on insurrection. OK, you know, but the, this was the excuse for delaying the stimulus checks. And then they had like a really half assed trial in which they didn't even call witnesses. Like the whole thing was, you know, like Trump could have been banned from running for president ever again if he's convicted and you know, to me, that was like kind of a good reason to do it. Um, mm -hmm. But I mean, several of it was the... real half-ass effort. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, there were there are 
there are certainly valid reasons that have been given for the kind of the futility of calling witnesses if you if you like or the active harm uh but i i i don't know if i sh- i share those myself exactly um but what what i ha- what has been interesting is that several um state republican parties have formally censured uh or are planning to censure the their senators who voted to convict trump oh wow um uh, and that includes, uh, I think, I think, yeah, Senator Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania, who is not, uh, he is not going to be seeking reelection. So that's, that was seen as a big, big reason why he voted ostensibly his conscience. But something that I thought was really funny was that a, uh, uh, Pennsylvania GOP official said, you know, we didn't send him there to do the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay. All right, my man. Um, we got it. Yeah, but I I think it's uh it's a sad state of affairs, uh, still in this in this country right now. And we we hope you're all doing you're all doing okay out there. There's so many things we didn't talk about. There's like a, a giant storm in Texas. Tons of people have their um, their power out, and people you, you know do not have access to heat in many cases. Um, it's fucked up. The vaccine rollout, an ongoing disaster. Britney Spears is still under conservatorship. Free Britney. Free great, Britney. Great documentary, to be honest with you. I watched it this weekend. It was really really good. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, we have a really good episode for you today. Uh, we talked to David Cleon, who is a writer for Jewish Currents and also The Nation and The New Republic. And we had a really good conversation with him, particularly about how accusations are of anti-Semitism are weaponized against the left. Um, and also, you know, being a class traitor, being a millennial, as the boomers love to call us. And um, yeah, David is a really sweet and funny guy. I I loved this interview. And he's also, follow him on Twitter, a God-tier follow on Twitter. Yes, absolutely. All right, folks. So um, thank you so much. Please subscribe to our Patreon. If you have five extra dollars a month, please check out my Audible Plus book on Thursday and on called Zerpag Anthropology. And we will see you later this week on Patreon. Bye. Hello and welcome back to Reply, guys. We are so excited to be joined this week by David Cleon, uh, who writes for Jewish Currents. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks so much for having me. We're so excited. I've been following you on Twitter for a long time, and I feel like your uh, your Twitter is like is one of the ones that like liberals really go hard after. <laughs> that was, you know, I feel like about a year ago, at like the height of uh, Bernieism, I was, I that was definitely true. Um, and they still go after me now, but I don't really give them much to work with. Like I've. I've been, I think, largely coincident with COVID. I've been slowing down my tweeting a lot. I still do it, and I'm still on there all the time. But like, I used never, to... never leave because your Twitter 
is it's one of my north stars i oh think oh my god uh, thank you so much yeah it's really it's it's very important that you keep tweeting and that you not leave well, leave us us there to suffer it's never it's never occurred to me to actually quit i mean i'm i'm not going right. to you know throw away this this platform i have but no but i felt like a year ago it got a little intense at times i mean um you know you you get to a certain follower threshold where you can't really say anything. You can't have any like strong opinion that there won't be one faction or another that, that comes after you. And if you're trying to do anything productive, like um, work half time at a, a growing publication um, that has a reputation to uphold, then I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's day ruining to um, just get into fights with people for, you know, hours at a time, even if you're right. Um, and I think, you know, at, when, when it looked like Bernie was going to win about a year ago and there, there was like, you know, a, a month or two where it actually looked like it was going to happen. Um, uh, some of us got very excited and when it became clear that he wasn't going to win after all, I think, um, those of us who had been excitable, uh, on the Bernie left, let's say had to sort of figure out what our, you know, where we were going to go from here. And uh, people have chosen a lot of different directions. I've tried to pick, um, I've tried to stay consistent with what I always believed in. And for that matter, what I think Bernie always believed in uh, and, and still does. But, um, you know, I think that the the mode of being a, a combative asshole on Twitter may have, as, as a form of effective left-wing political praxis, may have hit its limits about a year ago. And uh, I've had to I've had to sort of tone it down a little for my own sanity. But I also I also want to say that you are not one of the people who I think of as uh, you know a, a flamethrower on the left. Like I, I don't find your rhetoric to be needlessly inflammatory or anything like that. So it surprises me that you you know, that you get the kind of blowback that you do. I always find your, your takes pretty, uh, pretty measured considering uh, the, the field that we're working with on, on the left, on Twitter. Well, I, I tried for that and I, I'm glad you, you think so. Um, and I certainly think when I write, which, you know, I, I tried, I, that's one thing is I feel like I gained prominence through Twitter when I actually wanted to write more and as I have been writing more and getting, you know, mostly good feedback for it. I've, I've wanted to be like, not totally defined by my tweets, but like, um, but you know, th it's funny. I mean, you can, well, so there's one tweet in particular that seems to haunt me all the time. And if, if liberals listen to this podcast, they, they, they may well be, if a certain kind of liberal does, they may be aware of it. And here can be my, my, uh, measured reflection on it it's a tweet where um that, that people like shoot screenshots at me all the time from about a year ago where i'm telling this guy charles gabba i don't know if you're familiar with him he's he's a liberal and kind of a he's an obamacare defender which is pertinent here he's someone who thinks like you know obamacare is is, is a great system it's working well we should be grateful we have it and right. um yeah that kind of guy and uh, about a year ago, I discovered that because I had made as a freelancer slightly more money than I was supposed to, which is by no means a lot or even an adequate amount of money, um, 
I had been, I, I discovered one day when I went to uh, pick up my uh, antidepressants at, uh, at the pharmacy that uh, the price had like quadrupled or something because I had been kicked off my health insurance a month earlier and nobody had told me. Um, and I did what, uh, it's probably not the healthiest thing to do in these situations, which was to do a little rant on Twitter about how messed up this is and how we need Medicare for all. And this guy Gabba jumps in my replies and uh, starts lecturing me on how, you know, if I had only known to check this box and do, I don't even remember what, you know, uh, this never would have happened and the system works and I shouldn't whine about it. And it seemed so tone deaf and insensitive to me. And I was so annoyed that I just kind of mouthed off at him. And I said something like, you know, when Bernie wins the primary, I hope you cry about it. And when you vote for him in the general, I hope you cry again or something. And, you know, whatever. That we got into a big fight. You can imagine the partisans on both sides. And, and um, you know, someone in, in Lib Twitter took a screenshot of this and now they've just been like, you know, at replying with it all the time whenever I say anything. And especially if I like mildly criticize anyone in the Democratic Party. Um, and, you know, I, I get it. Like, it's not like I never throw people's old tweets at people, at, at them when they say something stupid. And um, I get that it looks funny since Bernie did not, in fact, win the primary, let alone the general. Uh, and they love to make it seem like I must have cried when, you know, I voted for Biden, which I did, by the way, in the general. Uh, I <laughs> Didn't did not we all? Cry. Didn't yeah, I did we not all? cry. I felt fine. Uh, it is what it is. <laughs> But, you know, we're all I, adults. <laughs> yeah. Do I do I regret that tweet? I suppose I do. It doesn't hold up very well. But I also feel like when you just tweet the screenshot, there's a missing context, which is that this guy was being incredibly insensitive and obnoxious about a real actual policy problem and the real understandably freaked out emotions it was provoking in me at the time. Yeah. Also, I think that there is something, you know, I was talking to a friend and he's like, you know, all these Bernie people said that Biden was going to lose and that he didn't lose, you know? And I'm like, do you think that anything may have happened since, I don't know, early March? And right. There's also the federal that. election. Like there was, I mean, Biden didn't have a very strong showing, even in a situation where it was like obvious that voting for Trump meant hundreds of thousands of more people would die. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I've become, I, I haven't become a Biden guy, but I suppose within intra-left debates over how to feel about the present moment, I would say I'm probably more on the optimistic side. And I guess that makes me more on the, you know, shit lib side of, of the Bernie left, because I, I mean, for one thing, like, you know, Bernie Sanders is now the chair of the Senate Budget Committee, yes. which controls the reconciliation process, which is the only way in the absence of filibuster reform that Biden is going to get anything done. So if you believe that Biden has any baseline motivation as a politician to, you know, accomplish anything or win re-election or win re-election for Kamala or however it's going to be, um, you know, then he has to basically work closely with Bernie. And by all evidence, including, frankly, if you talk to the policymakers who still surround Bernie, uh, he is. And, and the, there are genuine conversations. There's been tons of reporting to the effect that anyone who works in the actual 
circles of Bernie, AOC, Ilhan, Rashida Tlaib, you know, all the all the figures who are seen as like actual left politicians or certainly were, you know, six months ago, um, they're they're all on board. I mean, they're not getting everything they want and they never expected to. And they're pushing for, you know, the best outcomes on everything. But no, they aren't, you know, leaking to the press that they feel marginalized and, and that Biden is is going to fail because he's not listening to them because I think they think he is listening to them. And it's because of what you said, Kate. I mean, something really, really big changed. And I think a lot of people across the political spectrum who are kind of dug in, haven't totally processed what that change means. It's the most, you know, with COVID, it's the most important thing that's happened in our lifetime, really. I don't think that's hyperbolic. And, um, it is, I think, rapidly changing the incentive structure for politicians. I mean, you know, precisely how much money we're going to get from the government and, and in what circumstances and who gets it is an important debate that the left should be aggressive and maximalist on. But the mere fact that the government is giving almost everybody a lot of money and, you know, that that's the those are the terms we're talking in and, and giving out extended unemployment and stuff is like an actual ideological paradigm shift from the last 40 years. And it's because people are suffering on a level they weren't for the last 40 years. And, and I think that that's, I think we're all having to adjust our, uh, our expectations in the face of that. I mean, okay. I, I think that's a very optimistic take. Uh, it is. To be just and to I'm be not an optimist that. by nature. Yeah, you know, you, you got like a, you got optimistic words and like a, a pessimistic tone. Um, <laughs> but I, okay. Well, so, what's the, the, what's the phrase that the leftists have about um, uh, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will? Optimism of the will. Yeah. yeah. Who says that? Was that? I forget. But... Might have been RMC. I don't know, but. Could, could be, could yeah. be, probably is. But, yeah. okay. So. Um, I'm just going to be devil's advocate for a minute here. And to do that, I'm going to put on my devil's advocate neck beard um, <laughs> and get in your replies. Um, so, <laughs> like I, you know, it would be so great if this paradigm of neoliberalism is at all shifting. But to me, like here are two big examples from this week about how it's not, or at least the past couple of weeks, like I, I can't believe the debate that's happening around the stimulus check when they ran on such a clear, clear, clear promise to write $2,000 checks to people. And, you know, also there's, you know, yesterday the um, ACA exchanges um, opened again for open enrollment for a three month period from February 15th to March 15th. And they're spending like $50 million um, in an ad campaign to like tell all these people about the health insurance that they can now buy, you know, spend $600 a month to have like right. a, a $8,500 deductible or something, you know, and like there seems to be a certain obliviousness or at least a not caring that like people aren't buying insurance, not because no one told them about it because they can't afford it, you know, and there's, there's like pretty clear pathways uh, to helping people in both of these situations, like just giving the fucking stimulus payment, you said that you're going to, and, you know, just putting people on Medicare and Medicaid and like the Biden administration does not seem to be exploring 
any of the obvious solutions here whatsoever. Yeah, well, I'm, I fully take your point and agree with it. I mean, I, I, you know, if we had lost either of those Georgia races, I, I don't even know that there would be any cause for even limited optimism because the margin in the Senate is, is so, you know, pitiful. I mean, it, it's not, there is no margin basically. <laughs> and we're being held up. I mean, people talk about Joe Manchin, but actually the worst Senator at the moment, I think, is uh, cinema. Kirsten Cinema. Yeah. The who, worst lady. Who's awful and who seems awful in a way that's like gratuitous, even for where Arizona is trending these days. Um, like, you know, I think that, you know, I mean, I should amend my optimism. I'm not very optimistic. I think that we're headed for ecological catastrophe. I think that. Well, full <laughs> or, amending the optimism. Yeah. There we I go. Think, well, that, uh, that's I more or less, that's a given on this that's show. That's a given, we, we but know, I think. We know that. <laughs> but I think it's, I think it's hard to be optimistic in the face of that. I think that uh, under any scenario, massive numbers of people are going to continue to die of, of coronavirus for the immediate term. I think the vaccine rollout is a disaster. I think the states are, you know, I mean, there's, and, and we're, we're not going to build democratic socialism under a Biden administration. I understand all that. What I think is different is I think we are going to deficit spend in a way that, you know, already puts us in a different place than the Obama or, or Clinton administrations. Um, I think they are pretty fed up with um, endless war and are going to try to wind down our major commitments. Maybe not to the extent I want, but I think like there is a turn away from that. I think there have been and will be a lot of good executive actions from the get-go because there's no expectation of Republican buy-in on anything. So they're going to basically skip the, the naivete phase that lasted most of Obama's presidency. Just, you know, they, they're... I think that um, I think that if they really are failing in delivering on this basic promise, that uh, there will be a revolt from the left and from people like Bernie. I mean, I think it would be incumbent on them for them to be. But you know, right now they're trying to get this thing passed with exactly fifty votes, and Cinema uh, is holding it hostage, and uh, it's going to make it shittier and shittier. I agree. I mean, there it's it's not it's not a great situation. I don't think the Biden administration per se is the main problem here. I think um, having no margin in the Senate and having even one or two bad Democrats is the problem. Yeah. But that... um, but but what almost anyone who works in progressive policy circles will tell you, and I think they're right, is that the median Democrat in Congress is well to the left of where they were a decade ago. Yes. Um, that that you there were it's you know not only is Joe Manchin maybe only the second worst after cinema, but he, someone was saying to me the other day, you would take Joe Manchin today over like 10 or 20 of the Senate Democrats when Obama took office. Like, uh, you know, people like Lieberman and Baucus. And uh, I mean, it was just a different party then, but there, there has been polarization. I mean, everybody knows that the Republicans have become the Trump party. The Democrats haven't quite become the Bernie party, to say the least, but pretty much all of them, except for Hillary Clinton, who's irrelevant, thank God, um, <laughs> know, pretty much all of them know that uh, Bernie has won the major arguments. And in particular, and this was the, this was the one shred of optimism I clung to at the end of last year's primaries at that very dismaying time when 
um, Bernie lost and our society collapsed at the same time. Um, the one hope I clung to, it was, it was a great time. We all, we all miss March, 2020, April, 2020, but, um, no, uh, the one a thing I found to be optimistic in that was if you looked at the polls, uh, the exit polls and stuff for, um, you know, any of the Democratic primary contests and you looked at the under 45s, Bernie won and it wasn't close. And under 45 is not that young. I'm, I'm turning 37 in a few weeks. You know, the, the media narrative about the millennials will always be that we're stupid children uh, who don't vote. But, you know, a lot of us are pushing middle age and, you um, getting on with our lives and uh, we do vote and we are going to be the majority of the electorate in the near future, I think. And uh, the people also think we'll outgrow democratic socialism. I have no doubt, like we'll all moderate a bit and get less fiery as we get older. And, but like, I don't think the baseline belief of like what the social contract should be in light of how, of the world we've grown up in is going to go away. It didn't for the depression generation. I don't think it will yes. for us either. We've I think seen, we've seen too much. Yeah, we're 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 all the adults for a long time that the supposed grown-ups have been boomers and Gen Xers who whose you know brains are completely poisoned by by growing up under fake affluence, and um, they they think that you get conservative as you get older. Most of them were conservative to begin with. Yeah, you know. A lot of them are in denial about that, but I, I actually think, um, I actually think most people who are like working on the operative level in the Biden administration now are fully aware that the party is trending left, and not just on cultural and social issues, but uh, on on bread and butter issues. So that's you know, I I just hope we can not be, you know that. I hope I hope that we don't destroy ourselves getting to that point. I guess that's my where I, I mean, this. we've already lived through like I'm, you know, I, I just turned 30 and I've had like, it just feels like from childhood on, there were just all of these major kind of historic lows in American history, like complete economic collapses multiple times uh obviously like multiple wars i don't like that's burned in our brains now and i don't really think i, I don't know i i don't see i i, I certainly i certainly agree with you and uh know that maybe some of our our zealotry will will wane uh with age but I can't ever see thinking that there shouldn't be like a robust social safety net in place or that the, there shouldn't be like immense guardrails in the system and that there, that the floor should be much higher than it, than it currently is. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I, sorry. You oh, I was just going to say like, not to mention the fact that like, you know, basically no one whose parents, who basically no one who doesn't come from generational wealth, like has enough money saved for retirement, even if it's something, it's not, it's not enough. Like I saw, the, I saw the, like, uh, 
some article that was saying like, you, you know, you need to have like at least a million dollars saved to be able to support yourself like at a middle-class level when you retire, you know? And yeah. I don't, I don't know anyone whose parents didn't give them that, that has that at all, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. I just saw an article in the drift, which is um, a new kind of young left journal of ideas um, by, uh, I think it was Kiara Barrow there, um, that was about the sort of coming wealth gap within the millennial generation mm. in, that, that Wall Street and everyone is preparing for. Because, I mean, it's pretty much categorically true unless you, you know, had a, a moonshot, um, a, a, a unicorn in Silicon Valley or something like Mark Zuckerberg. It's, it's, categorically true for the vast majority of millennials that that you know we're not earning or saving as much as as our parents relative uh to the cost of housing healthcare, higher ed um you know that that we're we're a downwardly mobile generation uh even for people who came from uh, a certain level of, of means which i should say i, I did I'm, I'm certainly not working class but um you know, what's, what's going to be fascinating to watch is as um, people pass on their estates, some millennials are going to get uh, pretty rich in a hurry, or at least maybe have like a million dollars to retire on in a hurry that they absolutely could not have saved themselves. And uh, many others are not. And, um, you know, that, and, and obviously those divides are, are not going to be random. They're going to be uh, they're going to heavily select for uh, race in particular. Um, so it will be interesting to see what that um, does when essentially like a giant personal wealth gap is, is introduced into, you know, 40 or 50 something millennials. Um, but uh, that said, I don't know that even, I mean, frankly, a lot of prominent socialists do come from, comfort or generational wealth or various rungs of it. I'm not going to name any names at all, but I assure you there, there are some prominent ones who do. We um, know who they are. Yeah. yeah. And that's the, that's the like open secret. <laughs> and I'm not, but I'm not, I'm not here to judge that. I mean, it, it's to their, <laughs> no, it's no, to no, their no. or as sure. the case may be our credit uh, that, that they have chosen to be on the left. It's certainly Oh yeah, not, no, I agree. Yeah. Love a good class trader. We love, love a good class trader. And so I think the question is, you know, will the realization that they are inheriting fortunes um, change their views about tax policy or the social safety net? And I suspect yes to an extent, but maybe not as dramatically as, as Twitter rhetoric might suggest. I think, I mean, there was a Times article recently about like really rich millennials who are also like getting really into give it all away philanthropy and, you know, stipulating that philanthropy is not a solution in any way for the lack of a social safety net. And in many ways, you know, is sort of an excuse for the lack of a social safety net. I was struck reading about, and, and also there were plenty of people who complained that that article is centering the wrong people, which yeah. fine, okay, I get that. But like, still, I, I don't think it's a totally made up phenomenon that there's a lot of people in our generation who, uh, you know, are growing up and being like, I didn't earn this and our society is fucked up and I want to try to change that. And I don't think they're going to be the vanguards of a proletarian revolution, although it's also worth noting that many of the most prominent Marxists in history came from 
elite or semi-elite classes, including Marx and Engels themselves, but um, which again, doesn't make them hypocrites. It just makes them class traders and, and to a certain extent, people who had access to educational resources and saw the depredations of the ruling class up close, which you know can give you a certain perspective. I, I think that one of the forces behind that is the fact that we talk about class in America so much more in the past like 10 or 15 years than in the previous 25 before that, maybe. Absolutely. Um, I, when I was in college, I, uh, I went to England and I was so struck by how much class talk went on over there. Um, just like among, among my friends. And I was like, that's weird that we don't do that here. And I feel like just a few years later, it was honestly, I think you can draw a pretty direct line to Bernie's <laughs> candidacy in, in 2016. Uh, but also yet yeah, a lot of factors before that we I mean, class is like a daily part of the national conversation now in a way that it just wasn't, certainly when I was growing up, definitely not when like Gen Xers or boomers were growing up. I mean, if my parents are any indication, uh, you know, the, or I guess the people who I grew up around talking about class was seen as like impolite and, uh, in, you know, either you know, like tawdry or immodest or something like that. Um, yeah, well, I think that there are pretty deep roots for that in in the last few generations of the United States, because, you know, at the end of World War II, like, basically, we were the world's creditors, and our entire economy was working on overdrive. And, you know, uh, putting aside racial segregation and, uh gendered oppression and and the myriad other problems we know existed in the post-war period um you know from from a broad-based economic standpoint it was a good time in the sense that uh you know it was labor management um government everything was thriving everything was loaded and you know working class people were getting houses in the suburbs and going to college and you know i don't want to totally um uh i mean it's not like it, I, I don't want to paint it too rosy a picture of that period for all the obvious reasons. But, you know, basically it was, it, it was a period where it seemed like everyone was winning. So that kind of tamped down on class conflict. And then there was a major crisis of it a generation after uh, uh, World War II in like the seventies and the solution was neoliberalism. And I think that for a lot of people that wasn't a solution, but I think that to the extent it was and to the extent that it kind of papered over talk about class for another few decades and through the Clinton and Bush and Obama years, maybe not the Obama years, but the Clinton and Bush years, um, it was because, uh, you know, there was just this expansion of easy credit and, uh, you know, low interest mortgages and, and, uh, just cheap gas and things that kind of made the uh, the so-called American dream seem like anyone could get it, uh, not anyone, but enough people that that society would would hold. Um, and I think the 08 crisis really wrecked that. Um, I think the 08 crisis was was the first big shock that 
you know, even though they, they, uh, you know, suddenly generated trillions of dollars out of thin air to save all the banks, um, you know, that was when I think middle-class Americans such as they are realized that that no one was going to save them and uh, that their prospects had actually been in long-term decline. Uh, That was when our generation came of age and realized we weren't going to have the same opportunities. And, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that uh, a generation that experienced that will ever totally recover from it. I mean, either economically or psychologically. Um, I think, I think we know that uh, neoliberal capitalism is a sham if we've thought about it at all. And we know that government when it wants to can just certainly that the U S government when it wants to can just make money appear and, and chooses to do it for some, some institutions and not for others. Uh, which is uh, a pretty important insight now when we're seeing, you know, tens of millions of people out of work for absolutely no fault of their own uh, while they struggle with a a deadly pandemic. And, you know, uh, and a government that's kind of fumbling to, uh, to do anything about it. But, you know, the CARES Act, which, you know, whatever flaws it may have had. I mean, Donald Trump signed in some ways one of the most dramatic um, government handouts in modern history. You know, it was it was a one-off, um, but he did. And that says a lot about the severity of the crisis that provoked it, because it's not like that's, you know, something Donald Trump and the Republicans would normally be inclined to do. Certainly not, not really known for it, are they? <laughs> I want to make sure that we get to talk to you about something that I really wanted to to talk about with you. Uh, And I've seen you do a lot of writing and tweeting about this, um, which is the right wing, uh, right wing nut jobs. I'm just going to say it uh, like Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, or Gina Carano, as I say her name, but just like, yeah, all these these like right-wing wackos weaponizing accusations of anti-Semitism. I think, you know, often it's against uh, Ilhan Omar, but like, it's even, I've even seen people call uh, Bernie anti-Semitic. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, probably a lot of people have some context for this, but I wanted to kind of dig a little deeper with you here. Can you start by giving a quick overview of like what the hell these people are doing and why? Yeah. So, I mean, I should say, first of all, since I write for Jewish Currents, which is a a magazine of the Jewish left, um, and I uh, edit our our email newsletter, uh, that I'm speaking only for myself here, uh, not for Currents, but at the same time... um, you know, all, everything I'm saying is informed by Currents in some way. And obviously, I should also take this opportunity to plug subscriptions for Jewish Currents and for the newsletter, uh, because they're great. And you should buy a Bernie, yeah. and you should buy a Bernie mug, too. They're all over. Uh, people are tweeting their selfies of them all the time now. And it's, uh, it's a fun thing to have been a part of. But anyway, to your question, um, because we, we discuss this a lot and we think about it a lot. Um, the weaponization of anti-Semitism accusations feels like something that has been on the rise for the last few years, as according to various civil rights orgs and various metrics, uh, anti-Semitism itself seems to be in the U.S. 
Um, but people have very different and polarized ideas about what anti-Semitism is that seem to depend largely on um, whether they lean right or left. Um, to most of us on the left, I think anti-Semitism looks something like, uh, you know, Nazism or descendant form of Nazism. It's, it's, it's blatant. Uh, it's, uh, well, it's not always blatant. Sometimes it's more subtle, but it, you know, it plays on uh, physical stereotypes about Jews, uh, stereotypes about Jews being conniving or controlling finance or the media or, you know, not being loyal to their homeland or whatever. I mean, it's, it's not, it's, it is or should be familiar to most of us, I would hope, um, these stereotypes that literally culminated in the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think are um, a very active strain of rhetoric uh, on the American right right now. They, they always have been to an extent, but that was kind of tamped down for a long time. Um, in the Trump era, I think it was that strain, you know, via the alt-right and white supremacist groups and stuff was really emboldened. We all saw that at Charlottesville. You know, we saw it with the, the Tree of Life shooting in Pittsburgh and other synagogue shootings and, um, uh, you know, and in anti-Semitic memes that get circulated by, uh, by people in Trump's orbit or even Trump himself, whether he's fully conscious of what he's doing or not. Um, so that's one version of anti-Semitism. Then, of course, there's what the right thinks is anti-Semitism, which, not to put too fine a point on it, is any criticism of Israel whatsoever, and yep. especially if it comes from um, people of color, uh, Muslims, leftists, anyone that they feel they can uh, demonize and marginalize. Um, uh, for those of us on the left who have, I think, entirely valid and forthright and intense criticisms of Israel, many Jewish leftists do, and certainly all of us at Jewish Currents do. Um, I think that's galling in and of itself, but where it really gets ridiculous, where you can really see how cynical this is, is when you see the same people quite explicitly excusing the kind of classic fascist version of anti-Semitism as they you know, go after Israel critics. I mean, they make very clear that it's not like they think both of these things are anti-Semitism. It's, it's specifically Israel criticism. And they're willing to march arm in arm with, I would say, neo-Nazis in, in order to uh, protect Israel from criticism. And so as far as specific examples, just in the last week that you alluded to, um, you know, so Gina Carano is an, is an actress on um, The Mandalorian. It's a very good show, but she's not a very good actress. Um, and I admit my feelings about this might be a little bit different if uh, I thought that the show was losing anything by losing her. But anyway, she she had some tweets about like comparing, I think it was comparing right-wingers who were criticized to like Jews in the Holocaust. But then she also tweeted um, like a blatantly anti-Semitic meme about, you know, Jews controlling the world. It didn't say Jews, but like they were clearly meant to be Jews. And this was based on a mural that Jeremy Corbyn, the former British labor leader, uh, had at some point circulated, but then renounced when he realized what it was. Uh, To the right in both Britain and the US, this kind of cast Corbyn as an irredeemable anti-Semite, which is a line they've, they've, deployed many times. Anyway, Gina Carano spreads this exact same meme. Um, 
Disney, which uh, controls Star Wars and The Mandalorian, cut her loose and wanted nothing to do with her. But right-wing intellectuals are furious about this. And, you know, the whole kind of anti-cancel culture, heterodoxy crowd thinks that, you know, Gina Carano has been treated very unfairly. And um, my old bet noir, very wise, the um, former New York Times opinion editor and columnist who now has a sub stack um, and who literally wrote a book. <laughs> uh, she, qu she quit, it should be noted. She quit, she was not fired, but um, she, she quit. She quit because, because of cancel culture. She quit because she kept working to get fired and they just wouldn't do it. So she had to fire herself. She self-canceled. She yeah. self-canceled, yeah. I mean, she she won that martyrdom so bad and they just, mm -hmm. just they wouldn't, wouldn't give it to, it to her. her. <laughs> but she, 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 she self-canceled. She spent about six months with looking for a job as her Twitter bio and I guess couldn't find one. So she uh, started a Substack, which I imagine is doing well for her because, you know, there's, there's plenty of um, bigots out there who will uh, subscribe to a Substack. Um, it seems to be a, a viable way to make a living. So good for Barry. But anyway, in her latest Substack post, um, she interviewed Gina Carano. She actually uh, called her up uh, to basically ask, Gina, are you an anti-Semite? And Gina Carano said no. And Barry said that was good enough for her. Barry also called Ben Shapiro um, the uh, right-wing admittedly Jewish we troll. love we we love talking about Ben Shapiro on this podcast yeah well who, who one of doesn't? our main figures <laughs> yeah. yeah so so she called up Ben the charming Ben Shapiro um and asked him if he thinks Gina Carano is an anti-Semite and he said no absolutely not just coincidentally he's producing some movie she's going to be in now that you know only right-wingers are going to watch which I'm I'm sure will be spectacular because the right is so good at culture but um but, you know, uh, so, so she does this and she, she has this kind of exculpatory, oh, she didn't really mean it when she published this meme. Flashback two years, um, and I dug up an, an op-ed column that Barry wrote for the New York Times about uh, Ilhan Omar uh, after Ilhan had, had said something critical about Israel. And it straight up calls her an anti-Semite. It calls the organizers of the Women's March anti-Semites it calls Mark Lamont Hill, a, a, a black intellectual who has criticized Israel from the left, uh, an anti-Semite. Um, she did not call any of these people. She did not ask them about their views. Um, none of them circulated, you know, racist memes or anything. All they, all they did was, you know, accurately describe what Israel is doing to the Palestinians. And... Um, and, and she called them uh, anti-Semites in, in the most important paper in the world. Um, has she had a change of heart in two years and apologized to them? Uh, I certainly haven't seen that. I don't think there's any indication she has. I think um, having actually read her book, How to Fight Anti-Semitism, I think it's pretty clear that while she superficially equates the anti-Semitism of the right and the anti-Semitism of the left, as she calls it, um, in reality, she thinks the one on the left is more dangerous and more pernicious, and she doesn't take the right wing one very seriously, even though um, it's apparently her childhood synagogue in Pittsburgh that got shot up by a, by a crazed anti-Semitic right winger. Um, and she knows that, and she's written about it, but, uh, but it's not her priority. Um, her priority is hanging out with people like Ben Shapiro, who has been, um, who, who, as I recall, was 
was the um, most popular Twitter account, like the most read Twitter account for, I think, at least two racist spree shooters, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, could just be a coincidence, but uh, I doubt it. I'm sh- yeah, I'm sure it is. I'm sure there's no, there's no correlation there. Um, yeah. Yeah. The. <sighs> oh, and, and I guess one other thing I'll say is that Barry recently minimized Marjorie Taylor Greene in relationship to, uh, in comparison to so-called left-wing anti-Semites, the um, QAnon congresswoman who just today accused um, Ilhan Omar of uh, anti-Semitism and who, you know, of course, has also been spread. Well, she she had the uh, Jewish space laser uh, meme, yes. right? Which mm-hmm. she which she tried to distance herself from, but like, which is about as cartoonish an example of anti-Semitism as as you could possibly imagine. And um, and and here she is calling out Ilhan Omar as the as the real anti-Semite. So yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty maddening. I really don't know how anyone could watch what happened at Charlottesville and uh, as you were saying, the tree of life synagogue and, you know, just like any of the, the, any of the events of the past uh, however many years and say with a straight face that quote unquote, anti-Semitism on the left is more dangerous than that of the right. The, I mean, a lot of the anti-Semitism on the right, the kind of, is cloaked in a naked support of Israel um, and for a certain subset of evangelical Christians, that has to do with the fact that they want Jewish people to go back to Israel because they think that that will bring about like the second coming of Jesus. Right. Well, that, that's the religious version. There's another version that's the kind of secular alt-right version, which wants right. Jews to go to Israel because they want Israel to be what they call an ethno-state. An ethno-state, state. Yeah. yeah. Yes, um, yes, that's also... <laughs> they, want, they want everyone to go back to their quote-unquote real country um, right. for us to live in homogenous uh, ethno-states. And, and Israel really sets the tone for this. I mean, Israel under Netanyahu and his various right-wing coalitions... Uh, sets the tone for this quite directly by, you know, having very warm relations with right-wing leaders in countries like Hungary and Poland who have, um, you know, engaged in various forms of official Holocaust denial, um, but who, you know, has really gone after uh, any left-wing critics in the U.S. hard. And I think that kind of sets an example that pro-Israel Jews around the world, I mean, I hate the term pro-Israel, but you know, Jew- Jewish defenders of, of uh, the current Israeli state, let's say, around the world uh, follow. I mean, they, they understand that Israel is more than willing to play ball with um, far-right anti-Semitic actors who have power in the world, um, but is horrified at the idea that their occupation could be delegitimized or compared to South African apartheid. Right. And a lot of us on the left also have pretty robust criticisms of other countries that were in bed with like Saudi Arabia. But when we level those sorts of criticisms, we're not called Islamophobic. No. Which I I think is telling about multiple things, but. (laughs) The Saudi Arabia Alliance is a very interesting one because inside the beltway, I 
think there are a lot of like, uh, although less so since the Hashoji murder a few years ago, but inside the Beltway, there are definitely like professional hacks at various respectable organizations and, and, and Democrats even who will, uh, and newspaper columnists who will defend the Saudis and will defend our allies in the United Arab Emirates um, and, and sort of downplay their human rights abuses and their you know, state misogyny and homophobia and, and, and so on, slave labor. Um, but I don't think almost anyone in quote unquote real America outside the Beltway actually buys any of that. I think it's um, Israel is a, a society that is actually being promoted to um, mm. to regular American voters, uh, especially on the right, as as some kind of a model uh, and and a country you can feel good about supporting. But um, our Gulf allies, I don't think the average American wants to think too hard about how close the U.S. government has been for decades with these. Um, you know, oil producing uh, autocratic Islamic monarchies that, uh, you know, did 9-11 in one case. But, um, yeah. you know, I think I think um, I think the U.S. government in both parties has been pretty determined uh, to reflect on that publicly as little as possible, um, because it would kind of upend our, our whole economy and national security system, they think, if if we were honest about that. So and the you know, the overarching theme here of, you know, the weaponization of the idea of anti-Semitism, it's, it's certainly not something that, uh, that I think any of us take lightly, but it also has had, like, I mean, if we look at the Labour Party in the UK, um, it's had major consequences for them. Uh, I, I interviewed a uh, an elected labor councillor uh, a few weeks ago, and we discussed it at length. I think the I think the difference there between the left uh, in the UK and here is that one the most prominent uh, left politician in America is Jewish. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> although there was, well, sorry, go on. Oh, no, no, you can go. Well, just, uh, he is, and very obviously so, but in fact, and I've written about this a few times, um, there was, a, there was a, a small but noticeable campaign in 2016 to kind of like deny his Jewishness in a way. Mm -hmm. Or to it was framed around like why doesn't Bernie Sanders want to talk about how he's Jewish? What is he ashamed of? You know, like and it kind of like spread a notion I think among a lot of older Jewish voters that you know he wasn't really Jewish or maybe he is Jewish but that means they'll never elect him. So you know the, there was like the opposite of pride the, for for younger Jews I think for younger everybody there was tons of enthusiasm about Bernie but for older Jews it was not like older black people voting for Barack Obama. It was, there was, you know, it, it was not persuasive to most of them, the polls or anecdotally. Um, in 2020, his campaign made more of an effort to 
acknowledge his Jewishness in terms of just where he was coming from and that his you know, father's family was killed in the Holocaust. And I wrote a lot about that. And we eventually got Bernie to write for Jewish Currents about, about his own identity um, and to denounce the anti-Semitism of the right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it offered him some protection from the kind of blatant, you know, accusations of anti-Semitism that Corbyn got, but I think the same, the same sort of um, efforts were made in a more careful way to kind of marginalize him from Jewishness, downplay his Jewishness, question his Jewishness, and then all of his allies, like especially Ilhan Omar, were subjected to exactly the same thing as Corbyn. Right. And I, I don't want to, you know, from, from what I've learned about what happened with labor, it is not a perfect one-to-one comparison no. whatsoever. There were many documented instances that went uh, unacknowledged. There were, there is a lot of, there is a lot of validity to what, to the kind of, or not validity, but there, there certainly uh, was documentation and, uh, some sort of a clearer uh, rationale for what happened with labor and certain people didn't take uh, responsibility for how the party handled or did not handle those things. You mean like there were actual anti-Semitic incidents in the, in the labor party? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, Corbyn could or should have, have done more about it. Whereas yes. Ilhan Omar, not actually anti-Semitic. Right, yeah. right. And if people, if people want to read a thoughtful take about this, uh, my, my colleague, Josh Leifer, wrote an excellent piece about um, labor and anti-Semitism and Corbyn uh, in the last couple months, uh, which got some uh, pushback from some left-wing Jews in Britain and um, engendered some controversy, but I think was really solid and intellectually honest. Uh, so, so people can look that up at Jewish Currents. Um, but uh, yeah, I, 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 think, I think the British context is different. I think there is, is yeah. more actual anti-Semitism in Britain probably. Yes, and, and, there, are, and there are less there are less Jewish people and in... less Jewish people, but also, <laughs> also the other complicating factor is um, I think British Jews are significantly to the right of American Jews. And in fact, I think, really? yeah. And in fact, I think Jews in most countries where there's an appreciable Jewish population are significantly to the right of American Jews, including of course, Israel. Um, that's, I haven't done a, a careful study of that. That's kind of my, anecdotal impression of Britain, France, Israel, uh, mainly them, but possibly other countries as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think American Jews have a, a owing to the circumstances of, of when we immigrated and in what numbers and for what reason, there's a very large chunk that came out of um, Russian empire labor politics of one stripe or another, and it's kind of colored um, it's, it's the reason why the large majority of U.S. Jews vote for uh, Democrats, including very affluent ones, um, mm. and why there's enough of the Jewish left to support a magazine of the Jewish left. Um, but yeah, I don't think the same history and infrastructure exist on the same scale in Britain or many other countries. So uh, that's my impression anyway. Yeah. I... 
you know, I've been kind of, I've been thinking about this recently because um, particularly in, in addition, well, in addition to this entire conversation, uh, BDS specifically gets a lot of pushback. And uh, I don't know if it, if has it actually been bans or labeled like a, a hate group in some cases? I know that there's been attempts to do that. Yeah, the um, the Democratic Party uh, was inclined to buy into um, formal BDS bans uh, in the last few years and then kind of backed down under pressure. Um, I believe it says in the current Democratic platform that Biden's team signed off on that Democrats oppose BDS, but they also oppose efforts to ban it on, uh, you know, what should be obvious First Amendment grounds. Uh, we actually recently ran a long investigative piece, which will be in our next print issue, but it's already online, by Jacob Hutt and Alex Kane uh, just a week ago. Um about the Anti-Defamation League and how it uh, has under donor pressure, and this is based on a lot of interviews with former staffers at the ADL, um, has basically marginalized its, its civil rights uh, department, which you know is supposed to be what it stands for, general civil rights, um, in favor of uh, clamping down on critics of Israel. Um, and one thing they've done is, um, you know, they, they, they've pursued BDS bans that, you know, people working at the ADL understood perfectly well and, you know, many objected to uh, are, are unconstitutional, just straightforwardly mm-hmm. unconstitutional. You feel however you want about BDS, but it's, it's speech. We uh, should, yeah, we should, we should mention uh, for anyone who doesn't know the initialism, it's boycott, divestment, and sanctions, and it's a Palestinian-led movement to do all of those three things uh, targeted at uh, Israel. Yeah. The the position of Bernie Sanders and his foreign policy advisor, Matt Duss, who I've interviewed a a number of times and profiled in the nation... um, their their official position is that uh, they do not support BDS. That is, they don't support like boycotting the state of Israel comprehensively, mm-hmm. um, but they oppose all efforts to uh, stop it, uh, to to regulate it because they're unconstitutional. And it's pretty clear they also sympathize with um, a lot of activists who are engaged in BDS. Um, and I think that is the view that has prevailed. With the, within the Democratic Party, um, it is not the view within the ADL or a lot of other Jewish institutions that are lobbying for more restrictions. I don't think it's the position of most Republicans. Um, I think there have been a lot of efforts to clamp down on BDS and to um, uh, specifically to, to regulate it on campuses. Uh, and when we talk about cancel culture on campuses, I doubt there's any issue that uh, uh, more academics uh, or student groups are um, actually policed on than than this one. Uh, often with no pushback whatsoever from uh, you know the the vocal uh, critics of cancel culture. In fact, uh, I think just a week ago, Nathan Robinson, the um, editor, uh, left wing editor of Current Affairs, who had a kind of long term. Uh, permalancing columnist gig at The Guardian, 
you know, said that he lost that gig very abruptly after an editor there uh, chided him by email for uh, for for criticizing Israel. So, you know, you can see the pattern that that uh, forms here, and you can see um, which you know that's the kind of free speech case that that doesn't really get taken up on the right. Whereas if somebody I don't know uses the N word uh, or um, says something transphobic, you know, then, then they become free speech martyrs. But, uh, you know, standing up for Palestinians is, is, a is, is a, first of all, a much more noble thing to do than use racial slurs. But, um, second of all, I think, uh, at least until quite recently, more likely to get you quote unquote canceled. Right. And I think that's, that's where we've we've come in the in the discourse uh, is that just just standing up for Palestinians and saying what about their rights what about the Palestinians is to a lot of people on the right enough to label you an anti semite. Uh, <laughs> pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, it's uh, it's a depressing a depressing place we've ended up. But um, I do think that there are a lot of people um, and a lot of Jews specifically who are, who are tired of this and tired of being pushed around by it. And um, I think when you have somebody condemning critics of Israel as anti-Semites, but defending someone like Gina Carano as not, uh, or, or uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene as not, um, I think that is so self-evidently absurd mm-hmm. and that, um, that, that for, you know, a Jew of basically liberal, you know, democratic instincts to, to see that is to, is to question, you know, whether someone is operating in good faith. And, um, you know, I, I hope we've been part of some shift in the parameters of the debate in a, a direction that among other things is, is, um, much more supportive of the basic human rights of Palestinians, so. Well, let's, <laughs> let's hope, I don't know, let's hope something good, anything good happens at some point, someday. Uh, I, I would, I would very much like to be vaccinated. That seems yeah. like it would be an improvement. On the, I, that, I think, uh, it's, I think we're going to be vaccinated in like, I, I don't know. I'm planning on like July, July, August, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, it's not like I have anything important to do between now and then. So, yeah. um, so I I do want to just ask you before we wrap up here, um, where can our listeners find your work and find your Twitter account and find uh, the screenshot, the the famous <laughs> uh, screenshot. I'm sure for the screenshot, I, I think you probably have to Google, especially because I periodically delete all my old tweets, which I think is good practice. For I anybody. think everyone should. It's yeah. good practice and it's good praxis. Yeah. And good praxis. Yeah. I mean, as fun as it is to dig up people's old tweets and make fun of them, like, you know, if we're being empathetic humans, this is a platform that encourages you to mouth off and yeah. you're going to develop and change over time, or you're going to, you know, have bad days and, you know, you, they probably shouldn't haunt you forever if if uh, you were just, you know, in a pissy mood one day. But um, but whatever, I can take it. Um, people can find me at David Cleon. That's K-L-I-O-N. It's all one word um, uh, on Twitter. And um, 
jewishcurrents.org. They can uh, subscribe to our newsletter there and they'll get, um, among other things, among many other things, they'll get an email written by me every Thursday. Um, also, uh, I write for The Nation, The New Republic, Foreign Policy, and various other places. So uh, people can, can find me all over. That's so awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, we totally. love talking with you. And uh, yeah. Please, please come back whenever you want. Yeah, yeah let's definitely do it again sometime. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, dude. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash reply guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway I saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley this land was made for you and me this land is your land this land is mine